Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, and we will revisit Genesis 3 and the teaching on the separation syndrome, as Pastor Bestel calls it, as we transition into the Apostles' Creed and Luther's small catechism. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Gold Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Bestel, as we get going here today, we brought up this separation syndrome teaching that, as I said in the opening there, that you have introduced us to here. And I have a very special announcement for us that actually one of your parishioners has very generously offered as a giveaway bookmarks that she has made with that. We did receive some feedback when we brought that separation syndrome up of, you know, well, it was described how we draw that out. You know, uh, you kind of describe that for us and so forth. But your parishioner has offered bookmarks that she has made with that. And we want to give those away to you. So, listener, if you would like to receive one of these bookmarks that draws out and describes that separation syndrome please write in for that or call in for that. You can do that by calling our listener comment line, area code 314-996-1542. Just leave us a message there. Tell us what you think about the show and the series as well, if you like, but you can request a bookmark there. You can also email us at kfuo at kfuo.org. Or if you have our KFUO app downloaded on your smartphone, you can use the open mic feature and leave a comment there as well. Again, tell us Not only that you'd like one of those bookmarks and how we can send that to you, we'd be pleased to send that to you. No donations requested or anything like that. It's just a a wonderful gift that one of Pastor Bestel's parishioners has shared with us, and we'd be pleased to share with you. So please uh, let us know how we can do that for you. But then also tell us uh, what you think of the show, and we'll be pleased to use that in some of our uh, promotions that run here on KFO as well. But Pastor Bestel, before we get into this teaching again and so forth, Remind us again, just very briefly, of what this separation syndrome is, and then go ahead and describe these bookmarks that we're uh, pleased to share and give away there. Sure, yeah, I'll take those in reverse order. The bookmarks are A Labor of Love by someone in our congregation who heard this teaching for the first time, maybe four, five, six years ago. And just every time I bring it up and every time she hears it, she's furiously writing notes about it. And she's a professional artist by background and and in her studies uh, and has used that artistic talent in various ways for the benefit of our congregation, including even the the remodeling of our sanctuary into a beautiful sanctuary. And so she uh, wanted to use her artistic talent for this and uh, has done a wonderful job in drawing up the separation syndrome in uh, using the same basic pattern that I use when I write it up on the whiteboard 
though artistically she does it much better than I do. And so she was able to put that onto a bookmark, figuring, you know, every Christian should have this bookmark or this teaching right in their Bible. And a bookmark is a great way to have that visual aid always present. So she brought it to me and I said, hey, this is a great idea. Let's go ahead and make it available for our congregation and also for anyone uh, of your listeners who would who would desire one. So we're happy to share that with everyone. Uh, again, what is this bookmark about and what is the separation syndrome about? We've now been through the Ten Commandments and the Ten Commandments are always reminding us of our sin. And that sin is not just that which needs a quick slap on the wrist and then you go on and do better. But rather, the Ten Commandments, as the theologians like to say, always accuse us, not because that's the inherent character of God's holy law, but because in the face of God's holiness, we see just how sinful and how complete the fall is uh, and how sinful we are in light of that fall and how much we have separated ourselves from our God. Isaiah 59, again, is the passage that we use for this. And Isaiah 59, too, is the one I still remember to this day. My father, when he first taught me on the separation syndrome years ago, when I was in his confirmation class, and I remember him writing out this verse on board, Isaiah 59, verse 2, your sin has separated you from your God. And when you look at Genesis 3, that's exactly what the fall is all about. It's this domino effect that sin separates us from our God. And when man is separated from his God, bad things happen. And bad things happen not just in his relationship with God, but in his relationship with himself, in his relationship with his spouse or his neighbor, his relationship with the environment, his relationship with his own body. And therefore, you've got the five domino effects, if you will, of the fall, the five categories of the separation syndrome, that when you look at everything in the world out there, all of your problems fall into one of these five categories or a combination of them because that's exactly what sin has done. And Genesis 3 records that for us, so we should not be surprised by it. And yet, we then must ask, well, where does our help come from? If the Ten Commandments are listed first in the small catechism to show us this is the problem and that you need a Savior from this and you can't be your own Savior, then where does our help come from? And I'd like to start answering that today by pointing out two passages in the Psalms. One is from Psalm 124. The other one is from Psalm 121. They're very similar, but they're slightly different. And it shows us that this theme is a constant theme throughout the scriptures. The first one, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's one that we know very well for those of us who use Divine Service Setting 3 in the Lutheran Service Book or page 15, if you will, in, in the Lutheran hymnal, that setting, beginning with that passage, reminds us right off the top that all of our help comes from God, that everything we need comes from God. The second one, the second passage is very similar to it. Our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And the reason I bring up both of those passages is that if you'll notice in both passages, the Lord is defined as the one who made heaven and earth. Notice how big of a deal it is that the Lord who made the heavens and the earth, there's creation, there's Genesis chapters one and two. The Lord who made the heavens and the earth is the source of and even brings to us all help. And if you recall, the word help comes from the Greek word for hope 
In the Greek, that word is helpis. And, and therefore, we ought to know that this God of hope, this God who helps us, he has all the answers. And we can go back to the beginning, the chapters of the creation, the chapters of the fall, when the Lord who made heaven and earth uttered his plans and promise in the setting of his now broken creation. And he uttered those plans and promises, that reverberating promise that would define all of history and all of eternity. And this God, who in his very first response to the fall and its separation syndrome, essentially said, I will separate you from this separation that you have caused, from the separation syndrome. So it's always great to have that image of the separation syndrome and just how complete and thorough it is. It's good to have that right before us when we consider this, because now as we hear the gospel, we hear just how much Christ has saved us from. This is a joyous reality to think about, that the more you study the law, the more you study the holy law of God, the more you realize just how not only depraved man is, but just how far he is from ever conceivably being able to save himself. And so to hear God say, I have the plan, what a comfort that is. What a reassurance that is that the Christian faith is not about somehow being able to claw our way back to God. That will never happen. Or as we said in our discussion a couple weeks ago on the third commandment, the fact that the third commandment says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, shows that our worship cannot be about what we're doing for God because we cannot make anything holy. We can only keep holy what already is holy, uh, and that is God's serving us in the divine service. And so here, when we look at the reality of our lot as the fallen creation and the idea of saying, I need salvation, who is going to save me? What joy then and what comfort to be able to read this response in Genesis chapter 3, right in the context, right in the heart of the fall, right in the heart of the brokenness of Eden, comes this glimmering hope of salvation in what is known as, in the Latin term, the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. And you can break that word up, proto meaning first, the prefix eu, like from the word eulogy, eu meaning good, and then the word angelion, like the angel message or the messengers who carry the message. And so consider how monumental even this phrase is, the first gospel. Uh, even before we read the passage, just take a step back and I'd ask the listener to rejoice in the word gospel for a minute and think about how important that term and that concept is. I've heard it said many and various times, I think most recently, I think it was in a book uh, or an article written by one of our seminary professors named Vels, that the word euangelion is a Greek word that originally referred to a battlefield report. And that would make sense. Uh, the Greeks, especially the Spartans, were warriors. Uh, war and battle was a big part of daily life for them. And that battlefield report would tell or would be given when one's army had won the conflict or was winning the conflict. Your listener can imagine the townsfolk huddled in the town, knowing that if their army loses, they're doomed. And then on the horizon, running over the hills, is this messenger, sort of like where we get the idea of the marathon from, right? The messenger who came running from one of the ancient battles to give the report and to give the news. 
and so here comes the messenger running over the hills. At first, he's just a small, distant speck on the horizon, but getting closer and closer to the townspeople, and they're holding their breath, wondering what news is he going to bring. And then finally, that messenger says, take heart, we have won. And that's exactly what this word gospel conveys to the Christian. In fact, it's not coincidence that the Old Testament reading for Christmas is from Isaiah 52, when the prophet says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. In other words, your God has won. How beautiful are the feet of the ones who come running over the mountains from the battlefield to comfort the huddling masses who are scared that they might have just been defeated by the enemy. And that messenger sprinting as fast as he can comes and he says, no, your God has won. Your God reigns. Now consider this carefully. The good news is not just a promise of future victory. It's also the proclamation of completed victory. On the one hand, that implies that already here in Genesis 3, as we read the passage, God's promise should be taken with the weight of already being as good as done. Sort of like that often used phrase, the lamb slain since the foundation of the world is often quoted as a phrase that people like to use. Uh, All of history awaiting the Messiah who will bring this good news to pass can know that it's already as good as complete. But on the other hand, I'd ask the listener to consider how this battlefield report understanding of the word gospel informs our understanding of, say, Christ's descent into hell. Think about this for a minute. He didn't descend to suffer. He had already finished everything on the cross. There was no more suffering to be had. He descended, and Peter says in his epistle, that Christ descended to proclaim to those who were in prison, who didn't believe in the days of Noah. And so what was he proclaiming? Was he proclaiming the gospel? Well, yes, but not necessarily for their benefit, but to their condemnation. In other words, you should have believed in me. Why? Because now he can say, even to this crew in hell, even in the scene in hell, he can say, I've won the victory, In a sense, because who knows the battlefield report even earlier than the townspeople, right? When you think about that messenger running over the hills and coming to those huddled masses, by the time he gets the news to them, it's already been done perhaps even a long time before. And the first one to know the result of the completed victory is the losing army. Isn't that an interesting thing that when God proclaims the proto-evangelium, When he proclaims the gospel for the first time, he does not proclaim it to Adam and Eve. He proclaims it to the serpent. And he says to the serpent, I will win. And then when Christ descends into hell, it's to proclaim that that gospel is finished even before the resurrection, even before the huddled masses of the faithful still on earth can know that Christ is risen from the dead and that their hope was not in vain. Already he has said, it is finished. And so not only do you have a gospel promise, but you have an it is finished gospel. And then God can again uh, go right to Satan after the work of the cross, and he can say, I have won, and you know I have won.
And then Jesus rises from the grave to continue proclaiming that victory over death through those who were eyewitnesses of his victory, that they might run to the ends of the earth to tell all the frightened townspeople, your God reigns. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture right in this word gospel that they can run to all the ends of the earth to say your God reigns, your God has won the victory so that those who believe the report may be comforted by that gospel and thankful to even boast about the one who conquered on their behalf. You know, when all the when all the townspeople are no longer in, in huddled masses, but they've heard the good news. Now, what do they do? They celebrate, they rejoice and they boast. To the Corinthians, Paul says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And to the Galatians, Paul adds, may I never boast except in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. Because there on that cross is where that victory happened, just as God predicted it at the dawn of time in the shadows of the fall. And so as God predicted it, so he promised in the shadows of the fall that it would come to completion. So it's a great intro just to think about that word gospel even before actually even digging into what God promises right in Genesis 3. So now maybe we should take a look at the text itself with all of this backdrop of God winning the victory, not only over Satan, but over all of the consequences, over the separation syndrome, and promising to bring that back into good order. Sure. Let's go ahead and take a look then. As I said in the opening, we'll revisit Genesis 3. And I like what you've set up here for us and. We covered several episodes now when we began this, the Catechized Life series, this series of catechesis lessons. It was kind of shocking to me at the time, but I really appreciate it. And I've really appreciated this image of the separation syndrome. Again, I've kind of taught pieces of it, but I like the way it draws together what has been a part of our teaching already there. And as you set up for us, before we even got into the catechism, we had to kind of figure out what the problem was, right? And that gets us into the Ten Commandments and into the Catechism. And so now, before we even get into the Creed, the next part of the Catechism here, you're going to lead us in finding that solution. And it's all right there in Genesis 3. So let's go ahead and revisit that again. And we'll read Genesis 3, verse 15 here. So it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so now I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Consider what it means that God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. In the Hebrew, that word enmity is often translated into the English as sort of just a reference to the idea of hatred and almost spite. But really, it's sort of this great divide, this great chasm. Like if one person were on the southern rim of the Grand Canyon and the other person were on the northern rim of the Grand Canyon, and you said to each other, hey, if we jump, we'll be able to grab arms together. Well, that's not going to happen. You've got too much of this great divide between you. In the same way, God promises this great divide between Satan and the woman. And consider that in the context of what we heard in Isaiah 59, when the prophet says, your sin has separated you from your God. That's what the devil had achieved, getting Adam to separate himself from God and join himself to the devil's disobedience of death. But now God says to the devil, I will separate you from those who you separated from me. In other words, I will reverse all of what you have just done. 
And if you look at the separation syndrome, that's exactly what we see in the pattern. So if we go back all those episodes to the beginning of the separation syndrome discussion, remember what order they came in. First was the theological separation, a man separating himself from God. That was uh, Genesis 3, verse 8. Then 3, verse 10 is the psychological separation, man being afraid, man being separated from his mind because he's separated from God. Then 3, verse 12, man being separated from his neighbor. And then you had sort of this chasm of time, if you will, or this gap in the time, because in the fall, those first three realities were what they had already experienced immediately. But then as God confronts them, he points out in two later passages in verse 17 and in 19, that there's also going to be and is now already happening this ecological separation in verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. And also in verse 19, the physiological separation, a man's own body, you are dust and unto dust you shall return. So there's the order, theological, psychological, sociological gap, ecological, and then physiological. Now think of how those are all restored with a very similar order. First, the gospel is proclaimed that Christ will come. Christ comes. He restores a man's relationship with God. The theological separation is fixed. Because of that new unity, man no longer has to live in fear or, if you will, apart from his own mind, but he can now live with faith in God. That's restored now. Is the whole psyche is no longer man trying to deal with this whole world by himself, but rather man being able to just trust in God. And then as that is restored, so also then is man's relationship with his neighbor, that if he lives with faith in God, he can live with fervent love toward his neighbor. Now, when you think of the Christian life, that's what's already restored. We know that there is unity between God and man so that we can live with faith in God and fervent love toward one another. But there's a gap again. And that gap in the middle there, uh, you know, verse 15 and, and jumping over that, Christ will come again. And when Christ comes again in glory on that last day, then we will see the restoration of the rest of the separation syndrome being fixed. The ecological separation will be no more, but there will be a new earth and a new heavens. And the physiological separation will be no more because, as St. Paul says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And therefore, there will be the resurrection and body and soul together will know the life of the world to come. And so just as the separation syndrome of the fall caused all of these domino effects, so when Christ comes and so as he is promised here at the very beginning of Genesis 3.15, and even before we get into the details of the promise, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He is saying to the serpent, I will separate you from the very ones that you separated from me, and I will reunite them to me, and I will have that victory over you. It's a beautiful beginning to Genesis 3.15. But then as you go on, uh, you have to ask the question, well, who is going to put all of this in motion? Well, then it goes on, between your offspring and her offspring. And we've got to be sort of careful with our interpretation there because the word offspring is a difficult word in the English because it can mean either singular or plural. Like a lot of English words, you can say that on the side of the road, I see one deer grazing or I see many deer grazing. 
or I uh, went to the lake and I caught fish or I caught a fish. Uh, Well, did you have a good fishing day and you caught a whole bunch of fish or did you catch one fish? Same word, but it means plural or singular. Same thing here with this word offspring. And so it doesn't capture exactly what the Hebrew intends to capture. And the first version of the word offspring is actually plural. If we wanted to get into all the Hebrew, uh, it's actually plural, whereas the second giving of the word is singular. So God says to the devil, I will put enmity between your many, many, many offspring and the woman's one offspring, right? That one individual that all of history is looking forward to. Now, also, we should understand that the word offspring there might not be all that helpful because perhaps a better translation is the word seed. What does that mean when we're speaking of the seed of the woman? I suppose people could make a big deal out of the idea that, you know, as we take our sex education courses in junior high or high school, you know, it's often pointed out that seed comes from the man and not from the woman. Uh, Others will uh, try to make the argument that, no, here it just generically means the byproduct of the woman. Uh, But the point being that the woman is going to have this offspring, this seed come from her, but Adam isn't anywhere mentioned. The man isn't anywhere mentioned. So whether it's a reference to this divine reality, because the seed typically comes from the man and not from the woman, or whether it simply is not the divine reality, but just a generic reference to the reality that the woman's seed, the woman's offspring, the woman's heritage, but it still leaves the man out of the equation altogether. Because as St. Paul says, as one man, sin entered the world. And therefore, how important is the virgin conception and virgin birth? How important is the incarnation of the Christ to be not of the line of Adam, but to be of the line of God? And we even see that in the uh, scriptures, and we'll get into this a little bit later in Genesis 4, that there's a hint of it right there in Genesis 4 of this recognition of him being, perhaps, if you will, of the line of God. Well, in fact, let's even just talk about it now, I suppose, just for the sake of the thought. In Genesis 4, verse 1, Eve says, I have gotten a man, and then the English translation says, with the help of the Lord. If you look at the Hebrew there, at least the phrase, the help of, is really not found in the Hebrew. And so she's really saying, I have gotten a man with the Lord, or even I've gotten a man the Lord. It seems to imply there that Eve believed that her son was the Messiah that was promised in Genesis 3.15. Of course, we know that Cain was far from being the Messiah, but it seems to imply that belief that Eve had in this first gospel promise. Okay, So how will we know if it's not Eve's son Cain, how will we know who this Messiah is and how will he affect the gospel and put the undoing of the separation syndrome into motion? That's the rest of this verse 15, where God says to the serpent, this one seed of the woman, whether that woman is Eve or whether perhaps it's even Mary, but he says this one seed of the woman will crush your head and you shall crush his heel. In other words, he will crush your head. There's certain victory, right? When one enemy's head is crushed, the game's over, the battle's won. And so he will crush your head, but you shall crush his heel. That's the most painful type of suffering that people can have is that pain of the heel. If anybody's ever had a torn Achilles heel, just the most painful thing in the world. So this idea of Christ winning the victory through suffering, just as Jesus cries on the cross, it is finished. Victory, victory through the cross, 
Here is the good news. And in Genesis 3.15 is the first time the promise of it is uttered in history and for history. The first gospel, as you have said there, and I often like to say when it comes to Eve and what you brought out there with the birth of Cain, she had the right idea, just maybe the wrong person. And so we're going to take a break here, but when we come back, we're going to have to see how this then develops into the full revelation of the gospel and who that promise is found in. Of course, we know it's Christ, but how do we get there? And so we're going to continue to follow that progression along as we come back from that. So that's our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel, and I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUA. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue our series, The Catechized Life with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. And we are seeing the solution to the separation syndrome as Pastor Bestel has set up for us. Pastor Bestel walked us through Genesis chapter 3 and setting up the separation syndrome. We saw the problem, and today we're seeing the solution. And as you set up for us, we see there in Genesis 3.15 that first gospel, that proto-evangelium, as you have set up for us, that technical theological term, proto-evangelium, that we use. And so now, was that promise just given there right after the fall, and then we had to wait for thousands of years for it to come up? Or, you know, just does the hope of the gospel, if you will, fall silent then until all of a sudden we get Christ on the scene? Or where do we see this unfolding then? Go ahead and take us away, Pastor Bestel. That's a great question because sadly, that defines how many people read the Bible. They'll read the Bible as if the Old Testament and the New Testament have nothing to do with each other or very little to do with each other. And they'll think that the gospel promise just sort of fell silent. Uh, And it'll show up again when we get to Matthew. But in the meantime, let's just go ahead and read about this sort of weird legalistic people, sort of this chaotic, sinful line of Abraham. And somehow we'll read into that, that we should try and copy Abraham's great faith and be like him, you know, who cares that he uh, didn't believe God's promises at many and various times within life, or he doubted them, at least. And he said, well, God can't make my old barren wife have a child, and therefore I'll get my servant girl pregnant. Or when he went down to uh, Egypt and uh, dealt with things there and lied about who his wife was there because he simply didn't trust God. So to read the Old Testament as if it's this great example of great faith is not the proper way to read the Old Testament. Rather, we should always realize that the Old Testament is always pointing forward to the New Testament. And the New Testament is always revealing what had been promised in the Old Testament. One of the early church fathers even used a phrase that reminds us of this, that in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed, meaning that when you read the Old Testament, if you look carefully, you'll find everything from the New Testament. You'll find it all in there. And we'll give a couple examples of that in a minute. And then he goes on. The 
New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And that makes a lot of sense, that the Old Testament is sort of a an odd collection of books until everything makes sense because of Christ Jesus. As everything points to him and he is the fulfillment of it all, then all of a sudden we can read the Old Testament and say, oh, this makes sense now. It makes sense, for example, why God would say to Abraham, go sacrifice your son Isaac. So taking a look at that one in Genesis chapter 22, as uh, our listeners might take the time to read through Genesis 22 and look at all of the different symbolism in there that is happening truly in history. We don't want to fictionalize the Old Testament. Uh, we don't want to turn it into simply some sort of a fable or a uh, something that's just a moral of the story type of a reading. It certainly is history, but God is at work in history. And as God is at work in history, then he weaves his promises of the future into the present of what is happening at the time of Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and all of the all of the faithful of old. And so when you look at Genesis 22, there's a great example, God telling Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son, Isaac, whom you love. And you can read through that and you can look at the, all these different phrases. For example, when he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love which sounds very similar to when God the Father says of his own son, this is my son, my only son whom I love. And then he says, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there on one of the mountains of which I'm going to tell you. Well, where is the land of Moriah? Uh, If we look elsewhere in the Old Testament, we find out some uh, odd things about Moriah being a place where David built an altar. And then after David, Solomon built the temple there. Uh, Moriah is, in a sense, sort of the ancient form or the ancient name for the place that would be Jerusalem. So that Abraham, it could be argued, though it doesn't very specifically say this, uh, but it could be argued with some plausibility that when God says, on one of the mountains of which I tell you, that Abraham is taking his son to perhaps the exact same location that Christ would die on the cross all those thousands of years later. And so when we read this, and then, of course, when people think about that passage in Genesis 22, uh, notice all the little details. Abraham takes his donkey and his two young men with him. Well, there's really no reason to even mention that. Why would the Holy Spirit include that detail, except for the fact that on Palm Sunday, Jesus told two of his disciples to go and bring him a donkey. And then the text says that on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. uh, And he told the young men, the boy and I will come again to you. We will come again. We're going to go over there and worship and we'll come again. That seems to imply that either Abraham was lying to them because he didn't think Isaac would come back or that he believed in the promised resurrection that Isaac would receive as one that God would sacrifice. But God had made this promise to Abraham that through his son and through his uh, line, the the Messiah would come. And then, of course, when you get to the end of Genesis 22, there's sort of a uh, neat switch there where all of a sudden the reader realizes Isaac isn't the foreshadowing of Jesus, but rather the substitute ram is. Remember that ram, that male lamb who is caught in the thickets, caught in the thorns by his head, by the crown of his head. And there is the picture of Jesus. And so as you read the Old Testament, you're seeing all throughout history, these pictures of God's promise of the coming Christ, whether it's Genesis 22, or we could also think of Joseph descending into Egypt 
and then rising and ascending on high to care for his brothers in their time of need, which is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Jesus allowed himself to be sold for silver, just as Joseph was sold by his brothers for silver. Uh, Jesus went down into the depths for us. And he was raised to the right hand of the king, if you will, not the Pharaoh, but the eternal king. He was raised to the right hand of the father and there intercedes for us as his own brothers. Uh, We can also think of the Egyptian exodus. There's so many details in the Egyptian exodus with the 10 plagues, sort of even hinting at the 10 commandments, with the angel of death passing over and God telling the households, paint blood on your doorpost, the blood of the sacrificial lamb, eat the meal in haste. And here you have all of the things that point forward to the New Testament. Of course, then, as they're getting ready to leave Egypt, God allows them to plunder the enemy. And anyone who has been part of the three-year church year series just a few weeks ago, recall that reading where Jesus says, uh, no one can plunder the strong man's house until he first finds the strong man. Well, Jesus has bound the devil, and therefore he can plunder his house. Just as in Egypt, they plundered the house of the strong man because God had freed them. So also now in Christ, we are plundered. We are the treasure. The church is the treasure that Christ plunders from Satan. So all of this is seen in the Egyptian exodus. Certainly the manna from heaven, uh, reminding us of, uh, or I I guess I should have, uh, I I skipped over the Red Sea, Uh, the parting of the Red Sea, reminding us of baptism, the manna from heaven, of the Holy Supper. There's just detail after detail after detail where you say, oh yeah, there's the New Testament. And of course, everything is about Christ. We can remember that they are finally brought into the promised land after those years of wandering in the wilderness and being cared for in the wilderness. They're brought in not by Moses and the law, but they're brought in by Joshua. Uh, The Old Testament name Joshua is simply the same name as we hear in the New Testament of Jesus. And so you've got all of these visuals in the history of the children of Israel. But you've also got it even in the other prophetic books or in the poetry books. In Psalm 22, of course, you've got, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the entire chapter is a picture of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, which then he fulfills some thousand years after the psalm is written. You've got Isaiah 53 that the prophet records, that Isaiah the prophet records, in which he lays out in great detail the crucifixion of the suffering servant the one who hangs between the two criminals in his death and yet is buried with the rich, with his grave being that which, remember, was acquired for him. And so all of these details in the Old Testament can point us forward constantly throughout history. In fact, remember that the people of the New Testament, or I should say the people of the Gospels, just the average townsfolk who were wandering around or the crowds that were listening to Jesus or even the Pharisees and the scribes or even the disciples, they didn't think of themselves as people of a new covenant. They thought of themselves as simply of the line of Abraham. How often do we hear the Pharisees say, we are the line of Abraham or we are the children of Abraham? And as such, it's telling to us that they're always asking the question, is this the Christ? Could this be the Christ? Oh, how could the carpenter's son be the Christ? Right? Even John the Baptist, when he's in prison, sends his disciples to them to ask, are you the Christ or should we expect another? And so their confession shows that they were long awaiting this Messiah. This Messiah has not been forgotten from the Garden of Eden. The rest of the Old Testament points us forward to this Messiah. 
And therefore, uh, whether it's Moses 1,500 years before the coming Christ when he writes the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, or whether it's David and the other psalmists in the book of Psalms, which is basically from about 1,000 years B.C., or whether it's Isaiah, about 750 years B.C., all of these point forward to this coming Christ. And obviously, these guys didn't have opportunity to collude together. There's nothing about this that is supposedly some shady conspiracy, as if you could imagine these old patriarchs sitting in some smoke-filled back room and conspiring how they wanted to write some amazing storyline that would stretch as much truth as it does history, uh, and yet still make it be believable enough to trick all those gullible Christians out there. Uh, That's not at all what was going on. This is history. And yet it's a history that is so divinely brought to a culminating point, as St. Paul says, in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might have the adoption as sons. And therefore, we ought read the Old Testament and the New Testament in that beautiful interwoven pattern. Again, the Old Testament being revealed when we read the New Testament. Knowing that New Testament, we can go back and rejoice in the beauty of what God was laying out in the Old Testament. And then it allows us to read the Old Testament in the proper light and actually, in a sense, again, find the New Testament in there. And so we ought not read the Old Testament simply as examples of great faith which sadly is often heard in American Christianity, that really the Old Testament is just about examples of great faith. Again, Abraham and all of the problems he has with his sins. But what about David? And of course, David could you know, have first seeing Bathsheba and then having the affair with Bathsheba and then covering that up by murdering Uriah. Uh, these are not examples of great faith, but they're examples of faith in the coming Christ and faith in forgiveness because of the coming Christ and salvation from capital M, me, because of the coming Christ. In fact, that chapter that is so often misused, I think, when reading the Old Testament, the the chapter known as the Great Faith chapter, which is Hebrews chapter 11, where it says, you know, by faith they believe, by faith, and it goes through all the list of the patriarchs, by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah, by faith Moses, by faith David, and it lists all of these off. Now, a lot of American Christianity says, oh, look, we should look at all of these faithful people and be like them. But how does that whole section end? It actually ends in chapter 12, verse 2, when it says that in the same way we, like them, our faith looks to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Notice he's the one who, in a sense, created it, and he's the one who brings it to its completion. Just as God is the one who promised the Christ, and then he finished the promise. It is finished. And therefore, we can rejoice in all of this. Everything we've talked about in this whole episode up to this point, and this is what we can rejoice in, it's captured in the fullness of this little phrase. And I believe in, or as the Creed says in the second article of the Creed, and in Jesus Christ. Now think about that word Christ. Everything that we've said in this whole episode really finds itself in this one little word. And yet that word is so prominent, that word is so important that it literally contains everything from Genesis 3 all the way forward to the New Testament. All of that is captured in this one word, because here is the Christ God has promised from Genesis 3. God has promised it all in him, 
and therefore everything is captured in that one little word. And so in a sense, this whole episode has been about this word Christ, and it has been not just an intro to the Apostles' Creed, but it has been effectually a consideration of that one word, Christ, that everything revolves around that. Jesus himself says so when, uh, for example, in John chapter 5, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but these are they that speak of me. And of course, if he's saying that in John 5, if he's saying that to the scribes and the Pharisees of the day, he's speaking by using the word the scriptures, he's speaking of the Old Testament. Same thing when he says in Luke chapter 24, he says to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, you know, he sort of chastises them, oh, you of little faith, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken about me. And then it says that he explains everything to them in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, everything concerning him from the law of Moses and the prophets, everything is about him. And then just about 20 verses later, not just to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, but to the disciples in the upper room, he appears again on that resurrection night, and he again explains it to them, and he opens their heart to believe. And it, again, it says the same thing, beginning with Moses and the Psalms and the prophets. Well, what else is there to the Old Testament but Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets, right? All that you have left other than that is the history, the very sad history of Israel in like first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, that is chronicling the faithlessness of Israel and eventually split into the two Israel in the north and Judah in the south. In a sense, that's not about Christ, other than the fact that God is so faithful to that southern kingdom, Judah, he keeps it going for the sake of the coming Christ. And yet everything in the Old Testament points forward to this Jesus. So there's no hope lost after Genesis chapter 4. We could go back even, even right back to the fall, or right back to the end of Genesis 3, and notice that Adam seems to have faith in this. When God says to Adam, the very last thing he says to Adam there is, you are dust, and unto dust you shall return. And then Adam turns around and names his wife Eve, the mother of all the living. Now, you don't have to believe me on this. The scripture doesn't say this specifically. I think he's speaking of redemption. He's not naming Eve after the mother of all creation because God just said the creation is as good as dead. And yet, I believe it's in faith of the promise that Adam names his wife the mother of all the living, the mother of all those who have life in the Messiah. And of course, at the end of Genesis chapter 3 there, God clothes them in the garments of skin that he had to get from an animal, had to shed blood, and then he clothed them almost as in in baptism. You have this picture all the way from the beginning, and we're carried through all of this, all through the Old Testament, right under when John points to Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away or who takes upon himself the sin of the world. All of that is wrapped up in this little word, Christ. And as you bring us to Christ, then, you would bring us, as we're progressing through the catechism here, the next thing after the Ten Commandments, which we've covered in the last several shows, would be the Creed. But with Christ, you would bring us to the second article of the Creed, actually, instead of the first article, which is interesting. And I'll have you give your comment on that here in a second, if you want. But I want to, for the sake of our listeners, say that as you bring us into the creed and start us with Christ and the second article here, 
It is not that we're proposing to rearrange the creed or anything like that. I know you and I both love the creed and we confess it as it has come to us through the centuries the way it is. And I don't think either of us is proposing that it or even the catechism should be rearranged or anything like that. The creed is rightly ordered and it's certainly good to start with the first article. But just by way of reminder, what we're doing here with this series is a little different than how we've gone through the Book of Concord and the catechisms on this show before. Before, we just have done a straight read-through and provided a commentary teaching as we went through the text in the order it is there. And that is certainly good and provides good teaching, and it is important to cover why the Creed starts with the first article, and we've covered that before, and we probably will again. But for this series, we are providing catechesis lessons, which is arranged according to a thought progression rather than just the straight text progression, which is certainly also a faithful method of instruction. So what we're doing here is following the progression of where we find this solution to the separation syndrome, which you've set up for us, Pastor Bestel, which does faithfully convey the teaching of the catechism, as we've shown with getting into where the catechism starts with the Ten Commandments, and that is the obvious problem that the mirror of God's law in the Ten Commandments reflects back to us. And so now you've brought us to the solution to the separation syndrome, which is Christ, which is addressed in the second article of the Creed. And I like this move, actually, for catechetical instruction. When I'm doing catechesis, most of the time, I will jump into the second article as well and teach it as almost the main point, if you will, of the Creed. Christ is certainly the focus, as you've mentioned several passages where Jesus himself and Scripture certainly directs us to that. But also in support of making this move for instruction, my thought went to Ephesians chapter 1, which Beginning with verse 3, it says, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his presence. So when we talk about the creed, the first article covering God the Father talks about the creation, right? And Ephesians would direct us to believe that even before the creation, Christ was the focus there. So that's pretty significant in my mind, at least, that in terms of teaching the creed and the confession of our faith, that we would see Christ as the focus in creation throughout the time of the Old Testament, as you presented for us here. And certainly we can also talk about Christ as the focus of the sanctifying work, which is confessed with the Holy Spirit in the third article of the creed. So I just wanted to kind of give my support there to this move in terms of catechesis, our instruction in the faith as taught in our catechisms. That following the thought progression, which you are using in leading us through the catechism this time, especially in looking for the solution to the separation syndrome, it is the natural and scriptural progression, I think, to come to Christ and the second article here, which is always our focus. So go ahead then, Pastor Bestel, and in the remaining few minutes that we have here before we wrap up today, you've given us our hinge now from the separation syndrome and the Ten Commandments and brought us to Christ. So go ahead and start us then with our catechesis on the creed as we enter with the second article, and then we'll take it up more fully next time. Sure, you're absolutely right that Ephesians 1 is a great place to go for that. That's a wonderful, I I hadn't thought of that passage, but that's a wonderful text to include here, that Jesus is the center of all this. He himself says, no one comes into the Father but by me. And when you think about that, and uh, I think this is a good time even to give this image, I often give it in regards to the first article of the Creed, but I think even to give it now, why start with the second article? You know, I often will tell my confirmands when I'm standing in front of them, 
there's a lot you can tell about me by me standing here. You can tell that I'm, you know, losing my hair up top, that my beard is getting gray. You can tell that I'm, you know, maybe about 40 something years old. Uh, You can tell that I'm married because you see the ring on my finger. You can tell that I'm a pastor because I wear the black with the clerical collar. You can tell I'm about six feet tall and maybe, you know, take a guess about 175 pounds or so. But I say the one thing you can never tell about me is you can never tell whether or not I'm a father until you see that little child run up to me and say, Daddy. And in the same way, the scriptures show us that it's only when God says of his son, or God says of Jesus in the baptism, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. It's at that moment that the rest of the scriptures open up with these references to father everywhere. In the Old Testament, I think I could count on one hand the number of times that God is referred to as the father. But in the New Testament, it's all over the place because he has revealed to us his son. And revealing to us his son, we now know him as a father. So we'll get into that in the first article. But that's why I do like to point to the second article, because Christ is the center of everything. And Christ is the one who opens to us the proper understanding of who is this God of love. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. And so as we look at this first line, and in Jesus Christ his only son, our Lord. That word Christ, again, means so much. And I would encourage pastors out there not to allow people to use it almost as if it's a last name. It's not a last name. It's the title and the the entire purpose of why he comes. Uh, In fact, when I give the words of blessing or dismissal at the end of the Lord's Supper in the hymnal, it says, now this very body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ strengthen you and keep you steadfast in the one true faith and the life everlasting. I always say now this very body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, the Christ, right? It's not just his last name. It's the title of what has been promised, as Ephesians 1 says, since before the foundation of the world. This is central to all of human history, and therefore this is central to me and my salvation and my understanding of who I am uh, and my identity as a child of God. This is all central this word Christ. Of course, the rest of the line there is also important that not not only is he the Christ, but he is also the son of God, right? It's important that we understand that not as lowercase son of God, as if he's somehow inferior to God, but rather that this is a title. Again, another title, just like the title Christ. So now we have the title, the son of God. Just as the angel said to Mary, when when he said that which is conceived in you will be called holy, the son of God. And so this title and this status reminds us that to be the son of God is for Jesus to be the same DNA of God. And we also, of course, confess, of course, that he's the same son of he's also the same DNA of Mary. So he's both son of God and son of man. This is important, of course. He has to be a true man and not just true God, but he's got to be true man because true God is not subject to his own holy law. By becoming man, he submits himself to his own law in order to live that law righteously on behalf of sinners who cannot uphold the law wholly and completely. He lives that law righteously and he offers up on behalf of man that one perfect sacrifice 
Remember when you talk about terminology in the church, a sacrifice is always something that goes from man to God. Even Jesus' sacrifice, he became man to offer that perfect sacrifice that man can't offer. And a sacrament is anything from God to man, the sacrament of holy baptism, the sacrament of the Holy Supper. And so Jesus, perfect man, is true man to offer up the sacrifice on behalf of man, that sacrifice that is pleasing to God, that one lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? The lamb that God provided, but he provided man as our salvation, uh, or he provided to man as our salvation, that one lamb that Jesus would offer up on our behalf. And that sacrifice includes his death, which he cannot die if he's only true God. And yet, he's, it's also so significant and important that he be true God, because true man can only die for himself. What good is it if I say to your listeners out there, I, Mark Bestel, will die for you? Well, that's not going to help them at all. But that Jesus, the Son of Mary, the Son of God, dies for them. That means everything, because he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. The perfect righteousness of man cannot die for the sins of the whole world unless that perfect righteousness is also true God, that his death may atone for everyone. Then the last little phrase there, and I know we're short on time, so maybe we pick this up next time, but that little phrase, Lord, is so important, and it's quite a claim. And maybe the cliffhanger to to leave the listener with for this week is, did Jesus actually believe himself to be Lord? Uh, There's an interesting question that often Christians have to know how to defend, that the cynic out there will say, oh, I think you're making too much of this Jesus. He's just a good teacher. He never actually believed himself to be Lord. Well, thanks to C.S. Lewis, there's a very great apologetic argument that we can use to defend the end of this line, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. That is indeed all the time we have today, so we'll start next time with examining that question, did Jesus actually claim to be Lord? That is certainly our confession of the Christian faith and the creed, and so we will start with that apologetic argument next time when we continue this series of catechesis lessons and we look at the second article of the creed with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. Until then, thank you for stopping by today, dear listener, and until next time, keep confessing, church.